0: The title of today's sermon is Sloganeering. It's taken from Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 17. I'd like to begin by asking God to be our teacher this morning, guiding and directing us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together with the people of God here at Lacey Chapel. We ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us through this ancient book. Bring it alive through the Holy Spirit. Work within our thinking, Lord, to comport us, to make us more like the, more, like, more like the, more, the Lord Jesus today. Bless us for having been here with your people in your house, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Do you tire of all the slogans that bombard us daily in the media? You know, the pithy sayings in the commercials that try to deceive us into buying some product we really don't need or want. I'm quite sure that you know them, the jingles that go along with them. For example, I'm loving it. Finger looking good. Have a break today. Have a Kit Kat. Snap, crackle, pop. They're great. This one's for you. Just do it. A diamond is forever. It keeps going and going and going. For everything else, there's MasterCard. And of course, make America great again. Does it irritate you when the church tries to sell Jesus to you with some pithy sayings? Plastered on t-shirts and mugs. You know, you've seen them. All I need is coffee and Jesus. Or daughter of the king. Stressed, blessed, coffee, and obsessed. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. God is good all the time. Jesus is the anchor of my soul. Be still and know. Know the author. Jesus is my rock, and that's how I roll. I could go on, but you know. You know the mother of all church slogans, WWJD. What would Jesus do? You can see behind me a slogan from a t-shirt from the text we look at this morning. Faith can move mountains. Is that really true? Or is that just a misquote of what Matthew actually meant? It's sad, but oftentimes people believe the misquotes from the Bible when they don't really know what God actually says. The most misquoted scripture of all is having to do with the pursuit of money. Many people quote it as money is the root of all evil. But that's not really what the Bible says. It says the love... Of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. If we interpret the scripture correctly, we will then gain a better understanding of it by its context. Let me set a scene for you. Matthew is a Jew, he was a Jewish tax collector, he was writing a Jewish book for Jewish people, he was writing as a Jew about a Jew. And the twelve disciples were Jews who were under the Jewish law, Moses. Jesus was a Jew. Matthew wrote about Jesus who offered himself to be a Jewish Messiah. Now, as I hope that you will recall, Jesus took three fellow Jews, Peter, James, and John, to the top of Mount Hermon in Israel. When they were... There, Jesus was transfigured. The three watched as Jesus talked with two of the great prophets of Israel from the past, Moses and Elijah. They were astounded, however, when a cloud overshadowed them and spoke out of it to them, the voice being that of God the Father. It validated Jesus, who the voice said was beloved by Yahweh and that he was the Messiah. However, as you know, life can never be lived on a mountaintop. After a few moments of spiritual exaltation, it was time to descend from the mountaintop, the place of blessing, the place of God's presence, and enter into the valley of humiliation, the valley of human need. They took this long descent from the top of Mount Hermon to its base, as you can see on this map behind me, Mount Hermon, is a snow-covered peak, and they walked down the mountain to what would be uh, near Caesarea Philippi. Um, You can see it's about 25 miles north of the city of Capernaum, which lie on uh, the Galilee, and it was just to the east of the city of Dan. But here they are at the base of Mount Hermon, just outside Caesarea Philippi at the Grotto of Pan. Now, on the second map, you can see a close-up view of Dan, Caesarea, and paneus which is the place that they descended to. It is also called, as I said, the Grotto of Pan. This is the place Jesus asked the disciples to identify his person. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Isn't that the question Jesus is asking all of us? As you know, Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But as they spoke, Jesus told them that his mission at this point in time had changed. He was now on his way to Jerusalem to die. However, Peter was having no part of that, and he rebuked the Lord to his face. Now it's a week later and Jesus is giving further instructions to his disciples about his person and his works. He begins by instructing them concerning the nature of faith. Please turn with me in your Bibles to chapter chapter 17 of the book of Matthew. You can find this on page 976 of the Pew Bible. We begin with verse 14 where we left off last week. Now, over in Luke's account, he tells us that this is the next day, presumably the day after the transfiguration at the top of Mount Hermon. Jesus and the three disciples, the inner circle, have made their way down from the top of the mountain to find the other disciples, the other nine, embroiled in a dispute. And that's where we pick up at in verse 14. And we read, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, and he fell on his knees before him. The other accounts uh, in the synoptics tell us that the crowd was disputing with the nine and with some scribes who were there. The question was raised um, by this man who came to Jesus as to what was his nationality. As you'll recall, they are in pagan territory. They are at the grotto of Pan, which was a place of worship of uh, false gods, the god Pan. You know, if you, if you follow the god Pan, everything just pans out in your life, right? Um, so the question is raised, was this man that came to Jesus a Jew or a Gentile? Caesarea Philippi is in the center of Gentile territory. So we might or should conclude that he was a Gentile. But the text does not clarify this for us. Apparently, the man brought his young son, looking to Jesus, but only found the nine disciples. They were down there, waiting for Jesus to come back from the top of Mount Hermon. The man asked them for help. He asked the nine for help, saying his young son was sick. But the nine were unable to help the young boy. As they waited, a crowd formed around them and the Jewish uh, scribes showed up. They'd been following Jesus and they began to interrogate the nine and then they turned their focus on Jesus when he arrived. And in verse 15, we see this crowd with the scribes in it surrounding Jesus and here comes this man with a sick son and he falls before the Lord and he says to him in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is a lunatic. How many times have we said that about our kids? They're just nuts, Lord. They're crazy. But this is a real lunatic. He was out of his mind. For he is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I'm reminded at this point of the Canaanite one, whose daughter was also demon-possessed, as you recall, and also the Roman centurion, Both were Gentiles who came to Jesus exercising great faith. Here, a presumably, I believe, Gentile father kneels before the Lord and begs him for help for his young son. This man was totally at the end of his rope. Have you ever been there before? Did you go to Jesus? This man goes to Jesus. It's his last chance to help his son. And he pours out his heart to the Lord pleading for his young boy. This boy had been afflicted with some kind of serious illness, which the father entitles as lunacy. Erratic behavior. It causes him, as we have learned here, to stumble into the cooking fire or into the watering hole or into the lake. When he says that his son is a lunatic, he's using a Greek word which means moon, selene, moon, crazy. When the Greek term is brought over, from the Latin into the English, it comes from the word "luna." You know, lunacy is where we get our English word from it, or lunatic. Yes. So the man asserts that his son is suffering from some kind of detached uh, with reality, detachment with reality. He's he's a lunatic. In the other Gospels, however, we find that his ailment is described in a different way. He's being diagnosed by the other gospels as being an epileptic. Luke even uses the Greek word, a specific word for seizures, in his account as he describes this. However, the word that is used here is a word that grammarians call a hypoxlegomeno. I'd like you to say that twenty-five times in a row, okay? That means it's only found once in the New Testament. The boy is just being described here and in other accounts as being thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, and shaking violently as if he has been struck by some kind of seizure. So is he an epileptic? Is he a lunatic? What exactly is here? What is he? The boy is described in the other accounts as suffering from epilepsy. The one thing that's for sure is that he is a danger not only to himself, but to others. He falls into the fire, and he's received terrible burns from doing so. And in verse 16, the father says to Jesus, When I brought him to your disciples, they couldn't cure him. They were powerless. When he didn't find Jesus, he he turned to a man, or men, right? People often do that, don't they? That's why they go to psychiatrists and that's why they go to doctors and witch doctors and all sorts of people who pretend to have the power to heal. But when he turned to the nine, they proved to be powerless. This should remind us of when Moses descended from Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. If you know your Old Testament, you know that text. He had just been communing with God and had been given the Ten Commandments. But when the people saw that Moses, says the text, delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Where's Moses? We can't find him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings out of your ears and bring them to me. And the people brought the rings to Aaron. And he took them, and he made a molten calf. And then he said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Aaron built then for them an altar. And before the calf, he made the proclamation, Tomorrow shall be a feast unto the Lord. The next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and they sat down to eat and drink. And then they rose up to play." And the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up out from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned away from that which I have commanded. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, and they have sacrificed it unto it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you? Are you out of your mind, Aaron? That's my addition. They brought this great sin upon you and upon themselves. And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of the Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make for us a God that will go go before us. And for this, Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire and, and Out came this calf. (laughs) It just popped out. Now when Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf in which Aaron had made. Oh my goodness. Moses is up there on the top of the mount where he sees the Lord at least the back of them. And when the business that he has with God is done, he returns only to find the people have become unfaithful and they've begun to worship a molten calf. What does Jesus find when he comes down from the mountain? What does he find the other nine disciples doing when he returns from worshiping his father and communing with him? He finds the disciples have become unfaithful. Just like the Israelites of old. Here we have an example of unfaithful and unbelieving believers. Here we have an example of unfaithful and unbelieving believers. You'll recall in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The Lord had given them the ability to deal with the problems that they encountered with people who were sick, and they failed miserably at it. Why is that? Why were they unable to exercise the power of God that had been delegated to them by the Lord Jesus? Why couldn't they help this young boy? What do we attribute the failure of the nine disciples to at the foot of the mountain? In verse 14, Jesus gives them an explanation for their failure. This is a stinging rebuke. He says to them, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How would you like if I stood up here and said to you people that you were an unbelieving and perverted generation? That wouldn't go over so well, would it? How do you think this went over with the disciples? And then Jesus says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Wow. A fantastic failure by the nine. Jesus compares them to the Israelites who had even rejected him by failing the test to trust in Christ in the crucible of trial. They, in essence, rejected him as the Messiah. They expressed the exact same attitude that characterized the generation of Israelites in in the nation now. This same unbelief was being expressed by the nine. And just as the children of Israel stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and were powerless and faithless when their leader Moses descended with the Ten Commandments here, the nine were powerless when the Lord Jesus descended from the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses found obstinate Israelites And Jesus finds powerless disciples. I just wonder, if Jesus returned today, will he find the church in the same straits as he found his nine disciples? The church is busy rejecting Jesus, isn't it? We know a better way to do it, man's way, which could be described as unbelieving and perverted. The Greek word that's translated here as perverted is the word diastropho. It is written in a Greek passive perfect participle, which gives us the meaning of a a crooked or misshapen generation. The implication is that they were corrupted and no longer were any use to the Lord. That is ironic, since the twelve had been sent by Jesus out to Israel... To share his message. Before they left, Jesus empowered them with all sorts of spiritual power. They could even heal the sick. You know, the church is powerless today, is it not? Is it for the exact same reasons that the nine were powerless at the foot? of Mount Hermon? Do we fail to depend on the Lord Jesus? Do we try to do it our own way instead of his way? Do we depend upon ourselves rather than the Lord? Well the Lord looks at this young boy who's in desperate straits, wriggling on the ground, wiggling on the ground from from a possession by the demonic, and Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes the demon that is in him. And we read in verse 18 that Jesus rebuked the demon, came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. There it is. The real reason the boy was so self-destructive was that he was indwelled by a demon. He didn't have physical nor mental issues. He had been invaded by the demonic. As you know, the boy's father had hoped the disciples could have helped his son, but they were powerless to do so because they were faithless. The father thought the boy was struggling with epilepsy. We often do that, don't we? We want to point to a worldly reason for some issue in life rather than its real source, which is spiritual. We'll lay on to familiar causes to lay the blame of our spiritual causes at the foot of them. He's got epilepsy. No, he didn't. He'd been invaded by the demonic and taken over. It seems that the epileptic seizures are the results of an excessive abnormal neurological activity in the cortex of the brain. That's what epilepsy is caused by. But this boy's problem was that he was possessed. And after Jesus expels the demons from him, the symptoms disappear completely. The nine should have and could have accomplished this same thing. They had the authority of Jesus to cast out demons. But they didn't. The father was completely wrong about his son's illness. His assessment was based on human thinking rather than spiritual thinking. And Jesus clarifies that by stating that it was caused by the demonic. The father really only knew that his son needed help. It seemed obvious to him that he had some kind of a real disease when actually lying behind the cause of his problems was the evil one. You see, Satan is a great imitator of all things. In these days, we attribute a lot of things that are really spiritual in nature to physical causes. We should know better. We have modern medicine. Back then, the ancient peoples had no way to discern between brain disorders and the the problem that this young man had, which was demonic possession. Little was known back then about how to treat these physical causes, and they certainly didn't uh, practice demonic um, eradication the way that Jesus is going to do it or did it in this text. So the the father naturally describes his son in physical behavioral issues as being uh, sick rather than being Possessed, He's suffering from seizures or epilepsy when in actuality the root cause was demonic. And in verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him about their powerlessness. Why could we not drive the demon out? You see, they still don't get it. They still don't understand why they were powerless. Please, Jesus, tell us what the issue is here. Well, as I pointed back to the, to the book of Exodus and Moses, who had left the children of God at the, at the foot of the mountain to go up to receive the Ten Commandments, and the people, what did they fall into? The practice of worshiping an idol. Even Moses' own brother couldn't withstand it and fell into it and actually led them into the evil practice of worshiping an idol. Jesus descends from the mountain to find his own disciples, losing the spiritual battle with wickedness, just like those that preceded him at Mount Sinai. In both cases, the problem was a failure to seek God's direction in God's mind. When the disciples ask why the demon wouldn't obey their command, Jesus replies to them in verse 20 saying, because of the littleness of your faith. You know, a lot of problems in your life are caused by the, your littleness of faith. Just as the problems of the disciples. It wasn't that God was too small, it was their faith was too small. It was too little. The problem is us, it's not God. Most of our problems result because of our littleness of faith and the promises of God. Previously, Matthew had highlighted this exact same issue, the lack of faith. Remember back on the Sea of Galilee when they were in the midst of the storm and Jesus came out walking to them? What did he ask, why are you guys so afraid out here? Remember that? And Jesus didn't wait for an answer. He just diagnosed the problem. He said, you men of little faith. That's our problem too, isn't it? We have too little of faith. So here they are at the foot of the mountain, exercising little faith. Do you remember when the multitudes needed the food to be fed? The 5,000? And they asked the Lord, where are we going to get all this food from? All we got is this small lunch here. And the Lord asked them, why do you discuss amongst yourself that you have no bread? And Jesus answered his own question, saying that. them, To them, you are men of little faith. This is the third time the twelve have questioned God's lack of provision to them, and the third time Jesus has answered them in saying that they were men of little faith. It seems to me that they were oftentimes overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. It overwhelmed their trust in Christ. Their faith became weak or little as it's described most often in the biblical text. I believe the timing of this event is critical to their failure of faith. It appears when Jesus is present and the twelve have uh, wavered, the nine have wavered in their faith I should say. Mark's chronicling of this same event pictures the father of the boy, doubting and wavering in Jesus' ability, just like the nine. And Jesus responds to the father's plea, saying, all things are possible to him who believes. You know, it's possible for believers to not believe, to fail in their faith. But this man was without Christ. All things are possible to him who believes. The question is, do you believe? Do you really believe? And immediately the father responded to Jesus saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a conundrum. Here we have the faltering faith of the Gentile, father of the boy who is demon-possessed, being juxtaposed the failure of faith of the nine who should have been able to cast out the demon that was bringing this boy to ruin. Jesus had given them the authority, you'll recall, from the past, to do so. They were perfectly able to cast out the demon, and yet they couldn't. And they couldn't understand the reason why they were so powerless. Some have suggested that what caused their powerlessness was their anger and jealousy of one another. Why did the three... James, John, and Peter get to go up with Jesus. Well, we're stuck down here at the bottom of the mountain waiting. Why do they get to go up? Are we not as good as they? Maybe that was the reason. As they're coming down the mountain, you'll recall that Jesus instructed Peter, James, and John to tell no one as to what happened up there on the mountaintop. I find that interesting. I'm reminded of some Old Testament prophets who were powerless because they forgot who they were. Maybe that's the problem. Do you remember Samson? Samson had great power, and yet he forgot, just like the nine forgot. And when it came time for the spiritual battle, Samson lost because he had forgotten why he had power. He thought it was in his hair. But it really wasn't in his hair. It was in the God whom he believed. Why were the disciples powerless? Because they'd forgotten. And they had descended into bitter rivalry with one another. This stresses the importance of you and I staying spiritually healthy and not relying on the past, but staying spiritually alert. Jesus points out here the problem, really, And it's a problem with many of us today, isn't it? The littleness of our faith. He said to them, Truly, truly, if you had had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you would be able to say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it would move and nothing will be impossible to you. I've given you a mustard seed. It's attached to the bulletin that you have in your hand. It's pretty small, isn't it? If you just have a small amount of faith, you can move mountains. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you guys don't even have that kind of faith. To move a mountain from here to there. You can do it if you have the faith and the proper object. You go home now. Is this man bothering you? No. He's my friend. If I have no business here with you. With all due respect, I'm going my way. With all due respect, you're not going anywhere just yet. Am I a joke to you? If I see you around my brother again, I won't put a bullet in your head. Do you understand yeah, me? Won't be needed. Mr. Buddha understands. You got one week to pack your crap and get your yellow hide out of here, or you don't believe me. You stay and find out. Hey, listen to me. You want to do something for Dad? You can you stop pounding around with this rat? Stupid priest filling your head with a bunch of fairy tales. What if I can? What if I can bring Dad back? Dad back? How? How are you gonna bring Dad back, you idiot? Like, like with the mustard see? You can move a mountain. Fine. Wanna move a mountain? There's one. Go ahead. Move. Move it. for everyone you don't have to do it you just try to humiliate you hey hey hey, hey. 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 Not. not now no え! <音楽> can faith really move mountains? Lights, please. Thank you. Is our faith too small? Is it too erratic? Is our faith too dependent on sight? What is the object of our faith? Does Jesus have to be bodily present for the nine to accomplish the task that was before them? Are we too eye-oriented? Or should we be more like the centurion and the Canaanite woman? you recall that when the twelve were out in the boat in the middle of the lake and the great storm came and their faith in Christ turned to terror? But as soon as Jesus appeared walking upon the water, Peter got out of the boat and walked to him. And then when he lost sight again, and looked at the water, he fell into the deep. Here the nine were alone, waiting for Jesus to arrive, and they were foolishly powerless. Their faith wasn't even the size of the little mustard seed that's attached to your bulletin this morning. They could have moved mountain, supposedly, according to the text. But really, that's just a proverbial saying. We all know that, right? Faith really can't move a mountain. You can do great things by faith. That's what it's really saying. The point is, is that if you have faith in Christ, you can do things that seem almost impossible by the power of God living through you. Our faith is not mere intellectual assent to concepts or principles within the scripture. Our faith is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. When our faith is tested... Then the question is, will we rely upon the living God, the Lord Jesus, or will we falter and fail? Jesus wasn't saying that if you muster up enough human faith, you can do impossible things. That wasn't the point. No, our faith is in Christ, not in our faith. He is the object of our faith. Jesus was not in any way running down his disciples or disparaging them for their lack of faith. He was pointing out that they need to have faith in him. Notice the if that begins this statement that we're looking at. If is a conditional statement. It assumes that the disciples did have faith. Jesus says, since... If, since, if you have faith, nothing will be impossible for you. That's where having a right hermeneutic or a right interpretation of the Bible comes into play. A literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible will always give you a right understanding of what the author's intent is. Here we take the words of Scripture literally, not allegorically. We understand the plain and the normal sense of the word here as it is stated. It is, in a sense, literal, but we can also understand literal sayings as being figurative or figures of speech. A Bible student never spiritualizes words making them say something that's completely or foreign to its usage in the text. We believe in the historical, grammatical understanding of Scripture. So we must understand the Bible in its culture, in its background, and who the people are that are in the the text making the statements. That means we apply the appropriate rules of grammar to every text and phrase in the scriptures. The Bible is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, but we must understand it within its historical context by its grammar and its usage. So, the inspired word of God reveals the thoughts of God and he condescends to man by using human language. God has in some ways humbled himself in speaking to us and he's stuck with using the genres that we find in the scriptures to do so. The literature of the Bible is how God speaks to the mind of man today. There are different kinds of literature in the Bible. All of them reveal the mind of God in different ways. There's Historical narratives, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic writing, there's didactic literature. And all of these kinds of writing have different um, types of literature tools. For example, there's metaphors, similes, imagery, parables, illusions, irony, personifications, paradox, and hyperbole. As we read the Bible, we must recognize those literary techniques being used by the writers and the speakers of the text that we read. So could he move mountain? Could he move that mountain? Well, Jesus also says in John 10 that I am the door of the sheep. What does that mean? How do we interpret that? How do we understand it? If we liter- take it too literally, then we start looking for a doorknob hidden somewhere on his body, if he's the door of the sheep. However, if we understand that the Bible uses metaphor and figures of speech, then we understand that Jesus is speaking of an entrance into eternal life, and that the door that he is, he opens that door and makes room for man to enter into the life everlasting. So the point of this context here, and context is always king, as you know, uh, it is intended to help us understand what the meaning of these verses are. Oftentimes, misinterpretation takes place when we yank single verses out of their context and make them say something they were never meant to say. Here in this text, in Matthew 17, Jesus has rebuked the nine for their small or their weak faith. He compares their tininess of faith to a mustard seed. Does the size of one's faith determine if uh, something will come to pass, if a mountain will be moved? I think that's asking the wrong question. The context helps us answer the right questions. We must remember that they have exercised a lack of faith in their ability to cast out this demon from the young boy. They should have been able to do so, for they had been given that authority by Jesus, and they had actually done so in the past. But here they failed at the task because of unbelief. The power of God was there, but they failed to appropriate it. Clearly, what we're finding out here is that a mustard seed faith is, is enough to literally move mountains. But that's just an idiom for meaning doing great things. The mountain was a metaphor for what, seemed might, what might seem like an impossible task was possible with Jesus. Our faith in him can overcome great obstacles in our lives. Peter wrote the Thessalonians saying, night and day we keep praying earnestly for you that we may complete what is the lack of, lacking of your faith. We also give thanks to God for you, brothers, because your faith is being greatly enlarged and the love of God of each of you towards one another grows greater daily. Your faith can be enlarged and even be made complete, but it's a process. It's a process of growth, of trust, of believing. In verse 21 we read, But this kind does not go out except with fasting and prayer. Now let me tell you, that verse is not found in most of the reliable Greek texts. That's why it might be bracketed in your Bible or italicized. Um, So most good English texts don't include it. The Sinaiticus and Vaticanus do not contain this verse, which many streams of Greek scholarship believe those are the most reliable texts. So it's suggested that it got here by a zealous copyist incorporating it from another text in Mark chapter 9 when he was dealing with a completely different issue. So next, Jesus gives his disciples instructions concerning his death. This is the third time that Jesus will inform them of his impending death and resurrection. In verse 22, we have the geographical information information that while they were gathering together in Galilee, so they moved from uh, the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I'm going to show you a map in just a minute, uh, down to the Galilee. And there Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now you can see on the map behind me on the screen that Panias to the north by Mount Hermon, is where they were. The transfiguration took place on Mount Hermon, and they came down to the base, and now following the arrow on the left, they've come down to their home port, their place of uh, meeting, Capernaum. Here we see Jesus is alone with his disciples. They've left Mount Hermon and its region, and they've come to the region of the Galilee. And... um, they gather at the home of Peter, which is in Capernaum. From this point forward, the mission of Jesus will, com- will completely change. He is now on his way to Jerusalem to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles in order to be crucified. The only thing that the disciples will hear, however, in this statement of Jesus in verse 22, is they are only attuned that he will die. Now they give Jesus no pushback here and they seem to completely miss the idea of his resurrection as we will see in the next verse. But they were deeply grieved at, this, at the news that Jesus is going to be delivered up and die um, on the cross. They have selective hearing, if you will. Well, most, many times we have selective hearing, don't we? They did at this time. It's like a, a funerals taking place. There's no rejoicing going on. They do really don't understand the implication of Jesus' statement. Obviously, if they did, they would have been rejoicing at the news that he would be resurrected. But they totally miss the importance of his future resurrection. Instead, they are mired in an unwillingness to accept the mission that Jesus has been sent on. They reject that he has come to be the suffering servant to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of a Savior who would die. They just don't get it. They don't even ask Jesus at this point in time for an explanation. So, Jesus um, just continues on, and uh, we see that his disciples are given instructions concerning what they should do with the government in the days ahead. Let me remind you that this was penned by Matthew, who was a former tax collector uh, for the government. He was a Jew, but he was also a tax collector, collecting taxes from Jewish people. He was a dupe, if you will, for the Roman government. He's the only gospel writer of the three synoptics to record what we're going to read now, beginning in verse 24. This is the relationship between Jesus and the government. In verse 24 he writes, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two, docma, two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drama tax, drachma tax? This is the last time that they will be in the region of the Galilee. This is the last time that they will enjoy relationship with one another, eating and drinking at Peter's house. As soon as they leave this place they will no longer enjoy the uh, intimacy that they had with the Savior. But that intimacy that they're enjoying right now is broken when there is a knock at the door. It's Peter's house so he goes to the door and he opens it and to his surprise are several of Matthew's former co-workers standing there. They ask Peter a very pointed question. Will Jesus, your teacher, pay the temple tax as required by the law? So this is Jewish tax collectors, not Roman tax collectors. All males over the age of 20 were required to pay a temple tax of a half shekel. And that equaled about two days' pay for, the, for an average worker of the time. These monies were collected and then taken to Jerusalem where they supported the temple complex. It paid for the upkeep of the site. It paid for the workers of the temple. And the tax was required of all Jewish males, again, over 20. The basis for the tax is found in Exodus chapter 30, where the Lord said to Moses, Take a census, number the sons of Israel. Each one of them shall give a half shekel for the sanctuary as a contribution to the Lord." Now, a couple of things to note from this text is, first, taxes were supposed to be equally applied to the rich and the poor, for it says, everyone 20 years and over shall give contributions to the Lord in the text in Exodus. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be memorial for the sons of Israel. So everyone had to pay this tax. It wasn't like the one percenters got stuck with paying the bulk of the uh, monies needed to conduct services at the temple. Everyone paid their part. All men over 20 paid the tax. Women and children did not. not. Now, a man could pay this tax directly at the temple or he could pay it ahead of time. One month before the Passover service uh, was held in Jerusalem, tax collectors went out and they asked males if they were going to the temple. And if they were, they would let them pay the tax there. Or they, if they were not going, they could pay the tax collector then. So these Jewish collectors came to Peter and asked if he and the teacher, Jesus, was going to pay the tax and in Jerusalem. And if not, they could pay them directly now. So Peter Uh, says that they intend to pay at the temple complex. I suspect the scribes might have been there, though, for various nefarious reasons. They wanted to put Jesus on the spot to see if he was going to do the right thing or if they would have an opportunity to accuse him of being a lawbreaker. And in verse 25, Peter answers their question, saying, yes. And then he went into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus knew what was going on saying, what do you think, Simon? For whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From sons or from strangers? Peter assures the tax collectors that they're going to be paying their taxes. However, he's not sure where the money comes from. So when he goes in, he's about to ask the Lord about where we're going to get this money to pay the taxes when the Lord chimes in and just asks him out of the blue, Simon, What do you think? And notice he calls him Simon, not Peter. He uses his natural name rather than his spiritual name. Simon in Hebrew, if you you knew a little Hebrew, you might know that means listen or hear. Peter needs to listen and to hear what the Lord has to say. And truth is, many of us need to listen and hear. We're too busy talking rather than listening to what the Lord has to say to us. And Jesus asks him that dreaded question, What do you think, Peter? You ever, never do that at a Bible study, you know, if you're the leader. Because you never know what people are going to say, you know. People think they're smarter than they actually are, oftentimes. And you'll get some of the wildest answers you ever, you, you could ever think of. So Jesus asked Peter what he thinks. How could they pay this tax? How could they do what is right or should they do what is right? Now, Jesus didn't really owe the tax money to the temple, as you know, because he was the owner of the temple. He was the God of the temple. It was His place where he and his father were to be worshipped. The historical background of this tells us, however, that no king ever pays tax. His family does not pay tax. He doesn't pay tax to his own government. The people support him because he is the government. So no son was ever asked to pay the tax that is of his own father. So Jesus is using an analogy here in his answer when he explains this to Peter. He was part of the king's family. He was a son of the king. So Jesus asks Peter the question, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs and poll tax? From their sons or from other people? use the word strangers here, but it could be uh, other people or or those in the kingdom. So it's best to understand strangers here rather as citizens or vassals of the king. The idea is that the citizenry, Pay for the taxes of the state. The sons of the king do not pay taxes. Jesus isn't giving Peter a civics lesson, however, here. He is juxtaposing the temple tax with that of a civil tax in order to make a point. He's comparing the kings of the earth with the king of the temple, that is himself. He's comparing the sons of the earthly kings with the sons of God or his disciples. Just as the sons of an earthly king were not about to pay the tax that was being made to their father, neither should those who belong to the Lord Jesus as king pay the tax. And Jesus certainly shouldn't pay the tax because it was his temple. So Jesus applies this same principle of earthly kings to himself as the king of the temple. Just as the priest and the temple workers were exempt from paying temple taxes, so should his disciples be exempt. However, Jesus doesn't say that to Peter, that they don't have to pay the tax in a sense. First he says it to them, In verse 26, Jesus said to Peter, then the sons are exempt, right? He's making a point here. Jesus affirms that just like the sons of the king don't pay taxes, the sons of the Lord shouldn't have to pay taxes. But he continues on in verse 27. In order not to offend others over non-essentials, that's the point that he's going to make here, so that we do not offend them, verse 27, go to the sea, throw in a hook, Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So they were going to be in compliance with the law, though there was no requirement for them to pay the tax because of who he was. They will do so in order not to make waves. Here we have the omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe instructing his servant Peter, to go to the waters of the Galilee, throw in a hook, and God will uh, pay the tax for him sovereignly. God provided the coin. I've been fishing before. I never found any coins in any fish's mouth. of you? I found plastic stuff, you know, from beer, beer cans that were hooked together uh, by the plastic. But I've never found any coins. So this was the God of the universe sovereignly telling Peter to go and directing sovereignly a fish to meet their needs. This must have made a deep impression on Matthew. After all, he was a former tax collector. He alone records this event in all the synoptics. Well, what can we learn from this? First, we need to hear the instructions of the Lord. It's easy to believe We already know everything. I know beaucoup believers who think they know everything. And in the end, they don't. But they have closed minds, so it's hard to teach them. Secondly, we we can become so self-absorbed over our wants that we forget Others. And that needs to be seriously challenged in our life. Wasn't that the problem of the 12? And specifically the 9 in this text? If we are to be effective in ministry for the Lord, we must remember that the ministry we do is the Lord's doing and not our own. We're really powerless. As was exampled by the 9 when they couldn't cast out the demon from the possessed boy. Our focus of our lives and our ministry should be on the Lord. He is the one who empowers us. We have serious examples of how not to live our lives in the nation of Israel first, then the disciples secondly, and finally the church today. We should heed these warnings of how not to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ We can end up shipwrecked in our faith if we follow the examples of men rather than the examples of the Lord Jesus. We need to focus upon Christ and not upon Peter or the nine or the twelve or anyone else. When we think that we are special like the nine began to think, that's when we get into trouble. They thought they could heal this guy totally on their own. And yet they found out they couldn't. The lesson seems to be that we are to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as the sufficiency for our faith and not of ourselves. We must focus on Jesus. He is all sufficient for us and we are all insufficient to meet the needs of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Help us, Father, to focus on our Lord Jesus Christ, to be energized and equipped by him. Father, help us to never see ourselves as being self-sufficient. Help us, Father, never to think that we can accomplish ministry in our own strength. Help us, Father, to see we need to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the empowering of the word of God in our lives, we pray.